0: <laughs> um, I think, am I the only not native English speaker in the room? I want to see how many people are going to be correcting me while I'm speaking. All of you, okay. <laughs> um, it's uh, a great uh, to be part of this day. I, I had the uh, privilege of listening to different uh, classes um, during the day. I'll um, say a word about myself. I'm, a, I'm from Israel. I'm studying here for a year on a, on a fellowship in Israel. I'm a community rabbi of a small community called Alon, about 15 minutes outside of Jerusalem, towards the Dead Sea. Anybody ever been in Alon? Hear of Alon? <laughs> Hear of anything near Alon? <laughs> um, it's uh, near Kfar Edomim, on the way to, to the Dead Sea and it's a part of a group of mixed communities by mixed I mean uh, religious and non-religious trying to create what in Israel is called the Yeshuv Kehilati Yeshuv which is run by the community in very very close community ties and these were the first Yeshuvim created by religious and non-religious together trying to build a life together, a school, youth group everyday life uh, with religious and non-religious people. And I'm going to get the, the Israel part in the second part of the talk and I'd be happy to, to elaborate on that. I didn't know this would be the setting. I thought it would be kind of a small room. We would all be sitting around uh, looking at each other. And um, and I looked at the title of my talk and I was wondering who would come to a talk called Methodological Teaching of the Halachic Dispute. You can see that I'm new here. I really tried to stick to, to what I was given to uh, speak about. But I was wondering if somebody wants to share just name, like, who you are and what interests you in the methodological teachings of the halakhic dispute. <laughs> if anybody would like to uh, just share. Yeah. Well, I, don't. <laughs> I don't have any pigments in the today, but I, I just I love learning about the, the arguments and the way that they're derived and sources of connections between them. So it's the intellectual Okay, not halacha per se, but where it derives from, okay, and the intellectual stuff behind it. Thank you. Anything else? So I think one of the things that are, are very interesting about halacha, um, I, I was in a different session this week with a person I don't name, Professor Michael Fishbane. Some of you might have heard about him, I'm sure. Uh, he wrote a book uh, called Sacred Attunement* on the New Jewish Theology. And he speaks a lot in the beginning of the book about what happens to a Jew when he leaves the bet Midrash and he enters the real world. What do you take from the world of the bet Midrash when you lead your everyday life? The kind of thinking that you have in the bet Midrash. The, the kind of speech. The, the dialogue. Things that go on within the bet Midrash. How does that um, how can you facilitate that in your real life? What kind of person does the Bet Midrash life create? Now, I was thinking a lot about the halachic dispute that I think has a lot to do with what we're going to talk about today. If we're talking about coexistence or collaboration, there's something very interesting about trying to take from the world of halacha something to our everyday life about talking about cooperation or coexistence. Because uh, halacha basically derived from a, a world of Talmud with many many different opinions trying to reach one little bottom line of halacha. if you think about the Talmud for a second let's start there and then we're going to see two or three different approaches of what the sages did with the Talmud in order to turn the Talmud into halacha. and one of them which we'll be focusing on Tosfat will will be helpful to us I think with uh, talking about the coexistence and the collaboration. What does the Talmud talk about? topics in the Talmud? Discussions of the rabbis. Discussions of the rabbis concerning what? The Torah. Their interpretation of the Torah. Their interpretation of the Torah. What else? What can we find in the Talmud? Narratives. What? I'm sorry? Agadita, narrative. We, we can find narratives. Agadeta. There's <laughs> a ideas for people. Okay, we can find different ideas different educational ideas, different theological ideas the better question would probably be now what can we find in the Talmud what, what can we not find in the Talmud if, if I tried to put the book of the Talmud in a certain faculty in the university today where would it fit in? it would fit in in law, right? It would probably fit in in Jewish studies it would fit in in history and geography and sociology of the Jewish people everything is there it's the last book that we've written, which encompasses every field of of life. The the used to call the Talmud Bavli. Bavli, Bavli in Hebrew means balul, something mixed up. Everything is there. Shakul balul It's the last book that, that is written like that. Once we reach uh, the Middle Ages and Rabbi Sadjaon and Maimonides, we've already been affected by the Muslims that have been affected by the Greeks, and they. Even somebody who writes about everything will be writing it in separate books. So if Rabbi Sadagon will have a Sidhu, and he'll write about the language, and he'll write about theology, he'll write about all of them, but he'll have a separate book for each one. And my Madavis, will write his book about halacha, and he'll write his book about Jewish thought, because we've already met the approach that says everything should have its own category. But the Talmud has everything in it. And even if you focus only on the halachic part of the Talmud, it's very problematic as a book that we want to learn Halakha from. Why is it problematic to learn Halakha from the Talmud? What's the obstacles when we, when we try to learn halacha from the Talmud itself? There are different opinions. There are different opinions. First of all, it's written in Aramaic. Oh, that's, that's cool. <laughs> right, that's that's one. It's written in Aramaic. We can't understand it. There's different opinions. How how often does the the Talmud state in the end of the discussion halacha ke? Who wins? Right. None. none, none. It'll say it sometimes, it'll say Halakha ke Abaye, it'll say Halakha ke Rava. sometimes it'll have rulings like it's always like Abaye or it's always like Rava except in certain instances. But in many, many cases it will say nothing. So anybody approaching the Talmud and wanting to study halacha from the Talmud had a big problem. So in the first few hundred years when people were asked Halakha questions in the time of the Gionim, When you sent a halakhic question to a Gaon, you know what the answer would be? The traditional answer for a Gaon to send back to a halakhic question was a page of Talmud. They never answered. They prided themselves, the geonim, they prided themselves for not writing anything. The great Chacham was one who was, was able to transfer or transmit the tradition from one generation to another without putting himself in the picture you ask me a question, the answer is Masechet Shabbat extracted of Shabbat, dafe nun hei it's a beautiful studio there by the way so that's the answer for your question, you have another question your answer is Baba Kama, here look up at that page, I'm not gonna answer, that was not easy and also problematic, people got this page of Talmud they didn't know sometimes to give a proper answer you had to send five different pages of Talmud from different places and at a certain point, different Jewish scholars um, this tried to, if I was standing near the bookshelf I wouldn't be able, they tried to take two of those huge shelves called the Talmud and turn it into something which is called Halacha. Maimonides I think describes this in the most beautiful way when he writes his foreword to Mishneh Torah. He says, what happens if you wake up on Shabbos morning and you want to have a cup of tea? and you're not sure if you're supposed to put it in the first cup of hot water or the second cup of hot water and the third cup of hot water <coughs> where would you find the answer in the Talmud? <laughs> probably in about five different places some of the Halachot of Shabbat are in the tractate called Masechet Shabbat some of them are in Megillah, some of them are in Baba Kama, some of them are in Psachim says, says Maimonides once you open up the book if you're lucky enough To find the answer, all three cups of water will probably be cold if it's still Shabbat. (laughs) It might already be the next Shabbat and luckily if you have the same question then you'll find the answer. So different people try to turn the Talmud into something which is um, feasible, is that a word? It might be a word and it might have nothing to do with what I'm trying to say. <laughs> but if it's a word, it also fits here. But they, they try to turn the Talmud into something that you can hold on to. Tangible. I you knew it was something that sounded like feasible. <laughs> 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 they want to make the Talmud tangible. The first one to do it before Mehmaridis, who's the first one who really approaches this? Right after the Geonim? Okay. The riff. Want to say something about the riff? No? <laughs> Rabbi Itzhak Al-Fasi is his full name, it's called the Reef, the Australians had the Great Barrier Reef, we have a Great Reef of our own, um, so I'm trying to make puns in English and it's not working, <laughs> <laughs> but um, the Reef, Rabbi Itzhak Al-Fasi, um, his name notes where he comes from, Rabbi Itzhak Al-Fasi, he comes from the city of Fez in Morocco. He's the first one to try and take the Talmud and turn it into something we can deal with in terms of halakha. What does he do when he turns the Talmud into halakha? What's well, interesting? What does he do? No, he doesn't write. What does he do? He just takes the conclusions. He actually does almost nothing, which is um, is not the right way to describe the amazing thing that Tarif did. But in terms of writing. He writes almost nothing. He 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 puts the Talmud into a large misaninet, um, a drainer. Is that what? And like out of the holes come out anything that has to do with halacha, and inside remain all the stories, all the agadot you were talking about, all the different ideas that weren't accepted as halachic rulings in the end of the sugya. So if this is the size of Masechet Shabbat this will be the size of the reef on Masechet Shabbat. It'll be about half the size. He'll take the halachic rulings and he'll, he'll clear out everything that is in part of Aracha. So he creates the most important book, maybe in Jewish halacha, the first one, without almost writing any words of his own. He puts in a few words and he'll put words to connect. You need amazing knowledge to do what he does. Because when he approaches a suya in the tractate of Kiddushin, and the Suya doesn't say which opinion is right. He has to know that in Masechet Brachot there's another dispute and there they do say what's right and it's just like this one so we should probably rule in the same way. So if you have the whole Talmud in your head and if you know everything that's going on, you can do the simple work that Rif did. But that's one school, Rif, my Maimonides somebody you also followed named the Rosh, Rabbeinu Asher who was very important because he was the first one to bring in Ashkenaz and Sfarad together he grew up with both great traditions but all those are one school. By one school I mean those are people who looked at the Talmud and said there's a million different opinions if we want Halacha we're going to choose one so the Reef knew which one to choose. What we're going to talk about today is somebody not like Maimonides or the reef or the Rosh who decided Halacha is like Abay or Halacha is like Trabah or we're going to study somebody else, the Tosfot. Anybody want to say a word about Tosfot? Who are they? Yeah? Of Rashi, mostly. Okay, it's a Beit Midrash. It's a whole school of thought started by the grandchildren of Rashi. I think within the Talmud we can find almost a hundred names of people who followed in this school called Balea Tosfot. And um, they start in what's called Ashkenaz, France, Germany. And we find Baalei Safot in England and in different places, there's somebody called Obiyakov in Milondon, I think. He's one of the ballet safot Their idea was very, very different. Um, when they approached different sugiot of halacha, they didn't rule A is right and B is wrong. What was their approach? Very, very Jewish approach. Everybody's right. You know the joke? about the rabbi sitting and one person coming and saying da, 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 and the rabbi says, okay, I think you're right, and then the person he was arguing with says, what? The rabbi says, you're right too, and then the rabbi's wife, or the rabbi's husband comes in and says, hey, they can't both be right, and he says, you're right, you're right too. So the Tosfot, as part of a great Jewish tradition, took jokes very seriously just finished a two week course with uh, Ruth Weiss and I heard her about Yiddish literature, so she just wrote about Jewish humor and, uh, and Jewish humor is something very very serious to, uh, it's one of the most serious things you can find, Jewish humor and there's something very interesting in this joke because Tosfut applied it as a way of teaching and learning when they studied Talmud. Tosfot would uh, look at all the different sugyot And when we find one thing in uh, Kiddushin that says A and another thing in Masechet Shabbat that says B the answer probably is because they don't agree with each other. There might be a hundred years and three thousand kilometers between the person speaking in Masechet Shabbat and the person speaking in Masechet Kiddushin. But still Tosfot will look at these different sources like a little child looking at his Ima and Abba and he doesn't want them to fight so he'll find a way. You don't ask a little child who you like better, him or Rabba. That was the kind of child, Tosfatwa. They looked up at the different sources and they said, no, there must be something in any, every one of these sources. Just uh, before we get into what well, we're going to study, like a famous example. Everybody or some of you um, familiar with the term is Man Rabbeinu Tam. What does Rabbeinu Tam mean? Come on. <laughs> the 72 minutes after Shabbos right? Rabbeinu Tam is a certain way of looking at the way the day is built and he thinks that what we call in Halacha havin, the final, final darkness when you can already see the stars is much later than what most people think so people who observe Rabbeinu Tam on Shabbos if Shabbos is out at 5.20 or 5.30 now it will be out at 6.30 according to Rabbeinu Tam Tam in Hebrew means finished. It's because they're screaming, Rabbeinu Tam, Tam, Tam. That was That's a Hebrew joke. It's not funny. Um, <laughs> I can't say that Jewish humor is a serious thing and keep failing <laughs> in my attempts. Uh, so we're going to have to improve during this session. But Rabbeinu Tam, for instance, is uh, his time derives from, there's two different sugya dealing with the way the day is built. One says that there's about 13 or 14 minutes between when the sun sets and when it gets dark. Which is about the time there is between when the sun sets and when it gets dark enough to see the stars. That's one sugya. It's in Masechet Shabbat. There's another one in Psachim that says that there's 72 minutes between. So most poskim will say the one in Psachim is not the one we rule by. Abe will say, no, they're both right. The one in Masechet Shabbat deals with a certain setting of the sun that we can't see. The sun sets behind the horizon and we can't see it. But there's really 72 minutes. So because And he recreates the day. because And he's willing to do that to change nature, to change the way we see, to change how the whole Jewish people observe Shabbat. But the price that he's not willing to pay is say that the track in Psalm is wrong that we don't go by that. So what we're going to do now is we're going to try and follow shortly um, I only realized kind of late that this was a shorter session than what I thought. <laughs> no, it was my fault. But um, So uh, we're going to go shortly through a passage with Tosfat. And we're not going to do a whole bet Midrash and learn these on our own. Uh, we're going to do a big Chivruta and try and learn them together. And the passage that I chose to talk about is a passage which in itself speaks about dispute. What do you do when two people have two different claims? And how do we deal with two different claims when uh, they're both claiming for the same object or same sum of money or claiming to be the same person or, or different um, disputes? So um, one side is Hebrew and one side is English. You can choose whichever one you want. It's a very, very famous passage. Also in Yeshiva learning and also it's one of the most quoted um, passages. There was actually a a TV show, an educational Israeli TV when I grew up called Shnaim Chazim. It was named for this passage. Don't know if there's anybody in this room who ever saw that. It's kind of funny to look at now. It will disclose how old you are if you raise your hand. Um so uh we're gonna start with Snaimo Chazim. So we're gonna um, um, I'll start with the English this is the first mishnah, in of sekat bababa which mainly deals with lots of different issues talking about economic dispute or different decisions that have to do with the uh, economic life between people um, and if anybody would like to read I'd be happy very happy okay you have to read out loud there so everybody hears it one of them says, I found. It. The other says, I found. It. One of them says, it is all mine. And the other says, it is all mine. Then the one shall swear that his share is not less than half. And the other shall swear that his share in it is not less than half. And the garment shall then be divided between them. Okay, let's stop here for a second, okay? The best way to approach a text is to ask a question, right? Let's read it for a second and ask as many questions as we can ask. You read about two persons appearing. They're both holding a garment, right? You want to say it in regular English? What, what's happening in the Mishnah? Say it in your own words. Um, two people here, they're both holding onto, you know, a foot or something. Something, like yeah. Um, and, the, and they're both saying it's mine. What is the ruling? The, uh, the, the ruling is that um, each swears that they own at least half, and then each takes half. And then each takes half. Okay, that's the first part of the Mishnah. I think there's about 10 or 15 good questions to ask about what we just read. Anybody want to start? What are the questions we have when we read this? Yes? baby, <laughs> okay. you cut half, so Okay, can you cut a code in half or can you not cut a code in half? Um, can't resist the... You know the Solomon story, right? You know the mother-in-law story? Yeah. Two mother-in-laws, waiting for their chatanim. This is is my last attempt. I'll tell no more jokes afterwards. Okay, I promise. They're waiting at the train station and the two chatanim are supposed to get off the train for their daughter and only one gets off the train. So they go to the rabbi and they're all screaming. He's my chatan, he's my chatan. So the rabbi says, hey, no problem. Give me a sword, I'll cut him in half. You take half and you take half. And one of them says, no, he'll die. And the other says, yeah, cut him in half. He says, that's the true (laughs) mother-in-law. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so there is a problem of cutting a garment in half, and the commentators will say that we have to find a way to split it. We'll sell it and split the money. You'll wear it Sunday. I'll wear it Monday. You'll wear it Tuesday. I'll wear it Wednesday. At some point, we'll put it in the wash. Hopefully, okay. But we, we need to find a way. Yeah. yeah. What about a more fundamental issue of whether one is actually telling the truth or one isn't is telling the truth, rather true. than just assuming both that people. Span. Let's make that even worse. Are they both telling the truth? Mm-hmm. Is there any chance in the world that they're both telling the truth? Yeah. Well, yeah. We could have both, they could have both found it at exactly the same time. It was lying on the street, and they both happened upon it at the same time. Maybe. Maybe, like one chance in a million no, of them touching the garment. They, the they can both believe they're telling the truth. Yeah. That's true. OK? It could be. Like when you find a parking space, right? You're sure you're the first one. That you saw that parking space from about three miles away, right? And you, and there's somebody else. So it could be you both really sincerely believe you're telling the truth. But there's a very, very slim chance, if at all, that they're both telling the truth. So there's a fundamental question here. One second, it's something here is not fair. We're splitting something. Yeah. Oh, so If they do actually have a share in it, if that share is equal, if the share isn't equal, like how do you like determine the the, the shares of it, it's kind of you know caught up on that. They're swearing that that you know one is saying is swearing that his share in it is no less than half, and the other one is swearing the same thing. Like, how do you even determine like who has a share and what that share? Is? Okay. So you're saying even if they are telling the truth, it's a big question. How do we determine how we split it up between them, right? and it's a very interesting s- swear. It's kind of weird. What are they swearing? They're not swearing about what they were claiming, right? What, what were they claiming? It's all, it's all mine. And they're swearing that it's at least there. half of it is theirs. Why? So they won't be taking an oath in mine. Yeah, maybe the Beidin doesn't want to force people I mean it's kind of ridiculous for the beydin to tell two people to swear on opposite things. You're, you're making the swear look like something the Shavua son becomes something which is not serious anymore, right? So they're swearing on the one chance in a million that it both belongs, right? So they're swearing on that. And how do we divide it up? Like the, the next division in the Mishnah we're not going to go into now is when one says it's all His and the other says that only half is His. Why would somebody say only half is His? That's a sophisticated thought. Maybe there's a deal between them. The, your problem is you don't have two twin ten-year-olds, right? Whenever they race, what's the first one gonna say? When they have a race, the first one that gets there says, I was? First. What does the second one say? No, he doesn't say, I was second. He can't say, I was first, because that's too much chutzpah. What does he say? We got here together. It's like, the second one says, no, half is mine. But uh, there's a certain amount of chutzpah that you can have. So, um, so there's a different way of dividing it when one says it's all, and one says... But because of time, we're not going to go into this in depth. I just want to say real shortly, I think one of the main things here is it's not fair. The whole Masechet of Baba Metzia, the tractate, opens up with the Mishnah, with the ruling, that the only thing we can say with almost 100% of... Um, hundred percent of certainty certainty about the Mishnah is that it's not fair and that's pretty problematic or puzzling to open up a Masechet with a ruling this is Baba Metzir we're gonna do judgment here and this judgment is not fair yeah It's very good. It could be that we're not looking for fairness. We might be looking for a peaceful resolution. Maybe we want them to go home not too upset. And uh, specifically in this case we have to remember two minutes ago they both had nothing. So it might be easier in this specific case to send them home with half. They found $100 in the street. So they both went home with $50 and they started the day with nothing. That's fair enough. Maybe in other cases the way of ruling in this dispute will be wrong. Since I really wanted to focus on Tosfat, I'm just going to say quickly what Tosfat does. Um, If you want to look at the Hebrew side for a second, we're only going to read three words and they're even not going to be in Hebrew, they'll be in Aramaic. But what Tosfat does, um, in line with what I was saying before the Tosfat do with the Talmud, Tosfat asks, with their vast knowledge of the Talmud, they say, hey, there's about ten other places but there's also a dispute about something. There's also two people that are claiming that something is theirs. But in those cases, you rule differently. And the Tosfat wants to ask, why in those cases did you rule differently? Now the Tosfat doesn't have the privilege of saying because A and B are wrong and this is the right place. So the Tosfat have to be very, very creative in saying, no, they're all right. And we're going to apply every method of ruling in a certain kind of dispute to a different reality or to a different kind of reality or they're going to have to be very, very creative in saying everybody's right but only in a certain case, like we were talking about. When you find something, it's easier to say split it because it's fair, they had they nothing. What happens if it belonged to the people? So we're going to try and go quickly to what quotes a few different places and hints to a few others. We're going to go through two or three different places. We'll do this quickly so we can get to things that are going on in Israel also today. Um, so we're going to read um, number 2, 3, and 4 and try and go through different... Number 2 is another Mishnah, also in tractate Baba Metziah. It starts out in a very interesting way that I didn't put here with a ganav, a robber who, who's done tshuva. And he's a robber that he cleaned out the whole street years ago, and now he comes to the people and says, I robbed this but I don't know if it was from your house or your house or your house. So that's the first discussion, who does it return it to? the second one is about a deposit this is where we approach by the way the ruling with the Ganav that's why I mentioned it is he has to return to everybody because he's to blame he shouldn't have been a thief in the first place so if you robbed a hundred dollars but you don't know if it was from mouse A, B or C you have to pay three hundred pay each one what happens if you're not to blame if somebody just deposited money with you who wants to read the Mishnah? number two Allah if two made a deposit with one person, one a mana, and the other two hundred Zeus, this one said, the two hundred is mine, and the other said likewise, the two hundred is mine, he must give a manet to each, whilst the rest lies until Elijah comes. Mm-hmm. So Rabbi Yose, said, if so, what will the deceiver lose? But the whole must lie until Elijah comes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Very simple case. Um, <coughs> me and another friend deposited money with Third party, um, he has three hundred dollars. He says, "I remember one of you gave me a hundred, and the other gave me two hundred. I don't remember who." Since we're both very nice people, we're both claiming that we were the ones that gave him the two hundred. And so, what is the first ruling of Chachamim? They gave one hundred to each. No, the maneh is the one hundred. Okay, so in the first ruling, he has a hundred to me, a hundred to my friend. What happens with the third hundred? It stays on deposit. Stays on deposit. Okay, it's in a bank account in the name of Eliyahu Na'vi. Someday when he comes, I'll have a lot of money to spend on lots of good things. Okay, that's the ruling of Chachamim. What does Rabbi Yossi say? What's his opinion? Says you can't give a hundred to A, a hundred to B, and put a hundred aside. What am I supposed to do? Put it all aside till Elijah comes. Take the whole 300 put them aside. Can anybody explain Rabbi Yossi? Or does anybody agree with Rabbi Yossi? Yeah? I because one of them, they, one of them, they both did give him hundred. They definitely mm-hmm. both gave him a hundred. So he's, nobody's getting something that doesn't belong to them. It's just the deceiver is not being punished for deceiving. Okay. So That's the logic of the sages, of Chachamim. They right. say, you both gave me a hundred. Both take 100. I don't know who this 100 belongs to. It's not something you found, so I'm not going to divide it. It'll wait here till Sunday. But Yossi says what? Why can't I give each one 100, yeah? Because you're incentivizing people to receive, Because they won't lose anything by lying and saying that 200 will still get their 100 back. Right. And what does incentive to do? Okay, can you explain that to the person who just lost 200? It's it not easy. It's better for the system, it's bad for the person, right? I could tell this person, hey, you lost a lot of money now, but all I can promise you is your children will live in, other, in a better world. Right? <laughs> it's it's a different way of looking at justice. The scope of the Beidin is much larger here. I'm not here to do specific justice in this case. I'm here to educate a society and if I want to educate a society I keep thinking of uh, my little children also because they're walking around here somewhere and also because sometimes if they're fighting over something I'll say split it in half and other times if they're fighting over something I'm going to take the whole thing away and say if you don't know how to deal with this nobody's going to get any cookies and then next time you'll know how to treat each other when it doesn't work. I'm just saying this in theory. In practice, it's Abba, move aside. Um, but uh, in theory, it would be a very nice idea. No? You can. There's different ways of dealing and you always have to ask, what is your goal and what am I trying to achieve? Peace and quiet, justice, fairness, education for the next generation. Okay, so there's two more. I already see we're not going to be able to do them all in. Excuse um, me. Yeah. There's someone who is known here, and that's the person who took the pockets. He should know who gave the two who gave the one. And if he makes a mistake, he should take all two and that he industry buys the Okay, that's a very serious accusation. And one of the Parshami, one of the commentators, asks that. Hey? And Rashi points out that it must be a Shomer Chinam. A Shomer Chinam is somebody who just did you a big favor, he's getting nothing. For the fact that you deposited, and because he was just doing a favor in the first place, it would be unfair to hold him accountable for the outcome. If he was a bank, or if he had received any fee for guarding the money for you, so then then you're right. It would be his fault, and you would have to pay. Yeah. I, and I'm no, I but I can see the point. Just as you said that Rabbi, Rabbi Yassi is trying to teach a lesson, you're teaching a lesson to some of the money that you should be responsible. Not not this particular case, but in the future, if you take money from people, you should know who they are. Okay. okay. And, uh, so it's teaching. It's another way of education. Or Who are we educating? Or what parties are... I'm going to go over the last two just in brief to, to make the point. The other one is about... Uh, I would have to draw lots of pictures here about an <laughs> ox goring a cow and I'm not good at drawing oxes and I'm not good at drawing cows so it would probably be, um, <laughs> it could be kind of fun. <laughs> no, but what happens if, um, I'll just do this in short, that's an ox. Oh, we won't do this. Okay. Um, There's an ox that caught a cow. We arrive at the murder scene and we find the dead cow. The ox is standing there smiling with this kind of mischievous smile on his face. And there's the cow there and there's also a calf lying dead beside her. What do we not know about the reality of what happened? We don't know if she gave birth to a dead calf before she was gored by the ox or afterwards. And then we don't know if we're going to take the money for, also for the value of the calf and not only for the value of the cow from the owner of the ox. So here too there's a dispute between Chachamim and a person named Sumchus or Sumachus. And there's another idea of how to solve. It's called Hamotzi Mechavero Alav It means you don't touch anything he's holding the money at the moment, you want his money, you have to prove you were right. So there are certain cases where the Baidin cannot interfere and say, we're not going to change reality unless we have a good reason. The money is now in his pocket, you want his money, you have to prove it. The fourth case, which is the most interesting, I think in many ways, is two people having a dispute about something called Arba. In Aramaic, or ma'aborit. in Hebrew it's a little boat, and they're fighting over it and the very surprising ruling at the end of the fourth passage in Baba Batra is called Kol D'Alim gwa. anybody ever hear that passage? what's Kol D'Alim Yeah, somebody's point Kol D'Alim gwa means the stronger should win you put the boat outside the beddin let them fight over it and whoever's stronger will win I can see you guys making faces at that uh, what do you think of the ruling of Koldalingva? What do you have to say in favor of the ruling of Koldalingva? What could be the uh, what is the court thinking when they're saying just because fight it out? That's one thing favor of that. Sometimes the court can say, like sometimes a parent can say, Hey listen, I'm not part of it. You, you guys solve it yourselves. Um, There's somebody called Adler. I don't know what parents went through an Adler course. Is it something that you do here in America? No? Adler? From Mitchell Floyd? Nobody knows him? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so Adler believed in letting children figure it out for themselves. It's like Adler. Yeah. Adler. Adler. Yeah. Adler. Yeah. <laughs> Same guy. Um, so that could be the core. I think in many ways there's a much, much deeper understanding of kuldalim Va. What could be the deeper understanding? Yeah. Um, maybe there's an idea that if something is really yours, you will fight for it. You know, the, the examples of like, you know, there's uh, you know, a, a bully or so- somebody who's bigger and, um, you know, but if something is like really, you're, you're the bully's trying to, to steal your jacket or something, but it's your favorite jacket, it doesn't, you all fight with everything you have for it, because you know it's a... That's very true, up to a certain size of bully. <laughs> <laughs> okay, which is part of the problem with that theory. I mean, I yes, agree in, in many ways, um, <laughs> but some of the commentators point out to that. Rashi says, no, kol alim is not really alimut, it's not violence, and it's whoever will bring more violent reiyot evidence, stronger evidence. They didn't really mean strength. Some will say what you're saying. Yes, if it's yours, you're going to fight over it. We've seen little nations overcome big nations over a piece of land they really believe is theirs because it's theirs. And uh, that's part of kol Alim um, gva. There's another radical interpretation we're not going to go into. It has a lot to do with Solomon that we were talking about earlier. Did not. We're not saying that whoever really owns it will fight stronger. We're saying the opposite. Whoever fights stronger really owns it. It's a different philosophy of possession. How do I acquire possessions over things? I put, acquire possession by showing that I want something more than anybody else in the world. That's a whole different idea, um, which would be nice to get into in a, in a different time. In many ways, that's behind the Kiddushin. That's how you do Kadesh with your Ratzon, with your will you say that you want something it's actually easier to explain in English than in Hebrew because shayach in Hebrew is belong or belonging and longing is to long for someone and if you're belonging to be in a state of longing of that's the definition I want to um, devote seven minutes to <laughs> and. I was warned that if I go over time, I'll... Leave. I want to just show what we did for a second, because uh, it's a global day of Torah learning, and I wanted to do Torah learning. But I want to think for a second about our topic of uh, cooperation and collaboration. Tosfot not only create a new way of thought in the study of Torah, there's something very impressive in what we can take there from their way of learning when we leave the bet Midrash and we enter the real world what happens when one party claims A and the other claims B? it's very easy to be Maimonides um, or Rifer Rosh and say A is wrong and B is right the philosophy of Tosfut, if somebody is doing something or saying something there must be something true to it which was the philosophy of many many communities in Ashkenaz Ashkenaz didn't have halachic books like the Shulchan Aruch Ashkenaz had what was called Minagya Keilot what each community did. This is what we do in our Kehila. when the Shulchan Aruch is written in Ashkenaz somebody called the Maharshal Rabbi Shlomo attacks the Rama, and he says how can you write a Allahic book for Ashkenaz? In Ashkenaz we do what our parents did and what our grandparents did. You can't tell me that what I'm doing is wrong you're in Krakow and I'm in Lublin and don't tell me from Krakow what I should be doing in Lublin it's a different approach to, the, to what to should be done. and the idea of trying to find I don't want a common denominator but not a lowest common denominator. To try and find some point of truth or a certain part of reality where applying this method would be right is something very um, powerful I think to take from Tosfat into the real world. I'll just say short in Israel I think about what is happening now. There's, I think one of the major problems um, in Israel now, there's something um, in Hebrew it's called Medurat HaShivet Medurat, there was a movie like that, Medurat HaShivet is the bonfire, Uh, the Shevet is like the clan and um, it's used as a term of some. once there was something we all gathered around, there was what was called Medurat HaShivet, and we're losing our Medurat HaShivet what uh, in English we would call social cohesion or something that we can all unite about. And, like if you looked at the last um, elections in Israel, what a lot of the people were speaking about was the gradual erosion of social cohesion in Israel over a number of different categories. It could be the question of uh, enlistment into the army. With the Haredim, or with the Arabs, or with different segments of society, they don't see themselves as taking part. It could be part of economic, it, we have the second um, largest gap between uh, rich and poor, between the percentages of people. Uh, it could be um, the Melkaz and the periferia, the center and the Peripheria, it could be over religious issues. But so much of what people were talking about in the elections, in the past election, had to do with all these issues of trying to regain a common ground that everybody could could come around to. Now if I try to apply for instance learning a Tosfa when people come from different places you have to try and find something that not differentiates between them but unites them. Um, An interesting example we're not going to get to both. I want to talk about one example with using our past and one example with using our future because I think to unite people you can either point to something here look where we came from or look where we're going what the Gal Soloveich would call Goral and Yehud this is where we come from, we have something together okay, we have a shared history or this is where we both want to go and both things are being used in Israel in very interesting ways i start with the past and we'll save the future for some future um, but like when we had two great aliyot over the past twenty years two very big immigrations from Ethiopia and from Russia. People realized or somebody was smart enough to say hey, if we're not part of the same story we're not going to be able to live together. Just to give an example there's a there's a famous halachic question by somebody called Rabbi Ovadia He's a convert and he asks Maimonides can I say Eloinu When I say the benedictions can I say my God and the God of my fathers. Can I sit in Leila HaSeder and say Aram Vedavi and the Rambam says yes. As opposed to other people that said no. Because the Rambam says if, you're, if you want to be part of us you can't be part of us if we don't share the same story. So when over a million Jews came from the former Soviet Union many interesting things happened. Well, one of them for example was in a place called Har Herze, which is a military cemetery in Jerusalem where one of the rules that are all the gravestones, all the tombstones there are all written in Hebrew. There was never any other language in haal But somewhere in the 90s, somebody set up a huge monument for all the Jewish soldiers that fought in the Red Army in the Second World War. And it's written in Russian. And somebody was smart enough to say, hey, this is part of the Israeli story. If they're not going to be part of the story, they're not going to be part of who we are. When the Ethiopian Jews came there was um, a famous uh, singing group called La Unfortunately they had a lot of problems and not everybody recognized them as Jews. And they were, so La came up with this song described their walk in the desert tor- towards Israel. I have a friend, he's a rabbi, an Ethiopian rabbi. When he was seven years old he ran away from his tent with a friend because they decided they wanted to walk to Jerusalem. They were found at the end of the day, brought back to the tent. A few years later he walked with his family most of the way to Jerusalem. But when that sound came out, somebody was trying to say, hey, we walked for 40 years through the desert. We're part of the story. This is part... So, when I'm talking about using um, or utilizing the concept of Toswat, of finding something that we can point to, brings us together It's something very strong. It could be used also in past and also in future. Um, I'm being cut short of uh, some of the things I want to say. I'll just, uh, I'll just say one last thing and hopefully we'll really be discussing. I can take a... so, so Just one word about the present and future. Uh, social cohesion in Israel is something I deal with a lot. Um, also in the community that I'm a rabbi of. Also the Bet Midrash like this that I teach in called Ein Prat for young Israelis from all different parts of Israeli society. Uh, in their 20s and 30s, Chidonim and the team trying to, to create or to recreate something that everybody can, can focus around. And I think um, in the way I look at it, there's something very optimistic happening. I pointed to the last elections, but I think the many, many Israelis are aware of the fact that we need a Recreate Medurat shivit. We need to uh, light again that bonfire in the center, is something that everybody can sit around. And it's happening in many, many different fields. It could be economic and it could be the question of the Gyus that I was talking about, the listening to the army specifically. I deal a lot with the question of Jewish learning. And um, more and more Bate Midrash are springing up. And more, it's not just Bate Midrash. Anybody listening to Hebrew music today, when I thought I had more time, was going to play a lot of. Uh, Be'od or Idan Reichel, or Eti Ankri or any other leading Amir Benayun singers in Israel, and you see people reliving or bringing back to life Jewish tradition in a much more way which is center, the center of the culture and not, not the periphery. Specifically, I just wanted to speak about Halakha uh, in this session, because um, I really feel halacha over the years played this role something which brought people together the main idea of halacha was the fact that if we're all doing the same thing it will be easy for me to eat at somebody else's house, we'll be talking the same language, we'll be doing the same things and unfortunately I've seen halacha over the past uh, years become something which uh, creates a divide and um, because of halacha, people won't talk to each other, won't eat at each other's house or won't we won't sit and learn together. And specifically, one of the things that I'm very concerned with is uh, bringing Halakha back to its original role. We're using it and its learnings in a way to try and recreate the things that we were trying to talk about. So I'm sorry. So this was cut short. And uh, the